0: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig further into St. Luke's Gospel with Parable of the Wedding Feast, Parable of the Great Banquet, Part 1, and Part 2, The Cost of Discipleship, and Lost Sheep and Coin. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordindoors.org or your favorite podcast provider.
1: What Augustine, who certainly had a very, very highly developed theology of Revelation, which is more than just scripture for Augustine, uh, Augustine also would be very comfortable in saying at another point, Roma locuta est causa finita est. Rome has spoken and the case is closed. That's Father Peter
2: Stravinskis, founder and superior of the Priestly Society of St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, speaking in a debate with James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Well, I guess the first thing we should ask is, did Augustine actually say that? And when he said it, what was the context? Does St. Augustine teach that the church decides doctrine? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time for our series Responding to Roman Catholic Proof Text. Joining us, Dr. Stephen Parks. Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Todd. How old is this claim? It has several facets to it. Papal infallibility, kind of the magisterial infallibility of the church to just finalize and decide doctrine.
1: Yeah, so it's somewhat of a difficult question to answer. And the reason that it's difficult is because the development over time happened so slowly that even in the time of the Reformation, for example, there was a general idea amongst the Catholics that the church was infallible in some way, but they hadn't really, even at that time, nailed down exactly how. So was it just the Pope was infallible? And if so, how and when? Or was it councils that were infallible? And if so, how and when? Or was it just sort of the church in general and her regular teaching? And if so, how and when? Or was it ultimately some sort of mixture of those things? And so when you read the reformers and they're critiquing the idea of infallibility, one of the complaints that they constantly make Is that while the church tells us that they're infallible they never actually tell us how so it's not really until really recent in history at Vatican I in 1868 where we get some of the recent ideas concerning papal prerogatives and especially papal infallibility before that we see that there were lots of Catholics even all the way up until the 19th century who did not believe in papal infallibility in fact Some people may not know that very popular catechisms that were in circulation prior to Vatican I actually say that the idea of papal infallibility is a Protestant idea that they try to foist upon Catholics to make them look silly and unhistorical. And in fact, Vatican I actually caused a split in the church between what we usually know today as the Roman Catholic Church or just the Catholic Church and the old Catholic Church, who believes in some sense in the infallibility of the church, but denies The infallibility of the pope so it becomes a very difficult question to answer as there are so many threads that need to be untangled
2: let's deal with that claim first that augustine who did have a high view of revelation and of scripture would also be comfortable
1: with the notion rome has spoken the case is closed sure yeah so the amazing thing to me about this clip and about the times that i have encountered this claim and they've been dozens of times over the years Is that not only do you get the statement, but you even sometimes get the statement in Latin as if it's a direct citation or a direct quote from Augustine, when in fact it isn't. At best, it's actually an allusion to something that Augustine says in Sermon 131. So in Sermon 131, Augustine is preaching on John chapter 6. And as he's going through the text of John chapter 6, he hits upon statements like John 6.44, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Augustine takes the opportunity then to uh, be able to preach against the doctrines of the Pelagians. Now, the Pelagians, for listeners who may not be familiar, were those who essentially denied original sin and therefore taught that all of us were kind of born just as holy as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and so sin didn't impact our will. We were able to convert ourselves. We were able to, simply through the exercise of our will, keep God's laws perfectly and therefore earn our salvation. So Augustine is preaching against these things, and toward the conclusion of the sermon, after he's already clearly refuted Pelagianism from the text of John 6 as well as some other places, he says this, For already, we have two councils on this question, which have been sent to the apostolic See, and there he means Rome. And rescripts have also come from thence. The question then has been brought to a close, would that their error may sometimes be brought to a close as well. So all Augustine is saying here is that, number one, they're clearly refuted from the scriptures. Number two, there have been two councils in his neck of the woods, which was Hippo and Carthage, which had had local councils, which had condemned the Pelagians, and they had even sent to Rome in order to get those councils okayed, and those councils had been okayed by Pope Innocent I. So he's saying not only are they refuted from Scripture, they're refuted from local councils, and they're refuted from the patriarch in the West. So as far as we're concerned, this is a closed matter, now would to God that he would just sort of root out the heresy as a whole. So there's nothing here about the infallibility of the church. Augustine's concern first and foremost was to explain to those who heard him preach that they were refuted from the scriptures because that's ultimately what mattered most to him. And in fact, if you look at the history of what happens during this time period, you actually find that there's a little bit of ping pong when it comes to Rome in terms of the way that they actually treat Pelagianism. So you have Innocent the First, who condemns Pelagianism, but then you have his successor, Zosimus, who actually vindicates Pelagianism and tells the bishops like Augustine and others in North Africa to sort of cease their attacks. And it's not until the emperor himself, Emperor Honorius, intervenes in the situation that Pope Zosimus says, okay, well, we'll go ahead and call a spade a spade and refer to them as heretics. So. He wasn't suggesting that Rome had any infallibility here. When you had people at Rome who agreed with him, he more than happily cited them. But when you had those in Rome like Zosimus who were willing to vindicate Pelagius, he stood against them. And I think here you can sort of bring in a general principle that Augustine teaches us elsewhere, particularly in chapter 10 of a work called De Unitate Ecclesia, which is on the unity of the church, where he says this. Neither dare one agree with Catholic bishops if by chance they err in anything, with the result that their opinion is against the canonical scriptures of God. So, for Augustine, what sets the rule of faith is Holy Scripture. The church then has the duty to agree with what the scriptures say. And if the church disagrees, then we have to disagree with people in the church, up to and including the Pope. I find
2: it interesting that. Since the, the official kind of promulgation of papal infallibility, as you say, really rather late in history for Vatican Council, I'm just interested that, that there have been some major shifts in, in doctrine that may have just been piety before this, but are now being promulgated. I'm thinking about Pope John Paul II, a admirable man for many other reasons, but he advanced the Mariology of the church as a pope using that very authority, didn't he?
1: He absolutely did in the sense that, you know, he's the, the leader of the church and the one that, that people look to. So he never exercised it in terms of infallibility, but in terms of preaching and writing and speaking on the issue, he very much influenced the church in the direction that it ultimately is headed in terms of Mariology. So. For those who, you know, lived through the 80s, for example, we might remember when there was an assassination attempt on the part of uh, somebody who wanted to seek to take out the Pope. And the Pope credited Mary with actually saving his life. And that sort of devotion To the mother of our Lord was encouraged by the Pope, and that sort of idea was most certainly encouraged in terms of the laity. So we do continue to see this, and we've seen some recent examples as well where some church teaching is being changed. For example, as it relates to their teaching on the death penalty, where Francis previously had allowed and permitted the death penalty and now says that it's not permissible any longer. So where we really are starting to see some, some remarkable changes as a result of the popes exercising this kind of authority.
2: I also find it interesting that it's, it's a kissing cousin, whether you locate it in the pope or in the magisterium of the church in general, it's kind of a kissing cousin to what's popular among liberal Protestants, which is that the church has kind of this Holy Spirit ability to sense changes, it's usually in liberal Protestantism, to sense changes of what the spirit wants to do, and it almost inevitably has something to do with sexuality.
1: Yeah, and and inevitably it always seems like they blame the spirit or suggest that the spirit is revealing to them to go the way of culture. You ever notice that, that they, they never stand against culture, but they always instead go along the directions of, uh, of culture. The reality is this, we have to walk kind of a careful path where on the one hand, We don't want to attribute too much authority to the church and suggest that the church is infallible. But on the other hand, we don't want to go the way of the way in which many Anabaptists and others during the time of the Reformation went, which was to suggest that the church has no authority whatsoever. So this, I think, is what tends to happen when people sometimes read the fathers, is they come to them having been influenced by Anabaptist traditions, which suggests that the church really has no authority. And they see the Church Fathers saying that the Church has some authority, even great authority, and they assume that that authority must therefore be infallible. But when you read the Reformers themselves, they speak very highly of the authority of the Church. So just as an example, Philip Melanchthon, in his Locke, says this. He says, therefore, who will be the judge when a dissension arises about a statement of Scripture, since there is need of the voice of one who settles controversy? I reply, the Word of God itself is the judge, and to it is added the confession of the true church. In this way, controversies over doctrine are settled. So kind of if you think about the way in which Augustine handled things, right, he was convinced that the Pelagians were wrong on the basis of Scripture. In his letter, he refutes them first and foremost, or in his sermon, rather, he refutes them first and foremost on the basis of Scripture. And then, and only then, does he point to the confession of the church? This is exactly what Melanchthon says here. Or you can look at Martin Chemnitz in his Enchiridion where he says this, when bishops teach the word of God pure and incorrupt and enjoin what Christ commanded to be observed, then their authority is sanctioned by Christ. Now, you can imagine sort of taking these two statements and suggesting that if you found them in somewhere like Augustine or Jerome, people would seize upon them as if they somehow taught infallibility, but they don't. The church is an authority. God has given us lots of authorities here on earth. He's given us parents, for example, who have genuine, divinely given authorities. He has given us earthly government, which has genuine, divinely granted authority. And he's given us the church, which also has a genuine and divinely granted authority. But none of those institutions are infallible, and all of them are to be governed in accordance with the rules and the principles that God lays down, particularly as it relates to the Church, those that are given to us in Holy Scripture.
2: Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. He's Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. We're answering the question, did St. Augustine teach that the Church decides doctrine? What will we find in Scripture to refute the idea that Scripture is insufficient for establishing doctrine?
0: If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Things above, that's the theme for this year's hymn sing at the Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. The Bridegroom soon will call us. Jerusalem the Golden, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, and a whole bunch more. You don't want to miss it. Making the Case is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Have you heard of the nuns? I'm not talking about Roman Catholic women who wear habits. Rather, I'm talking about those who mark nun on religious preference surveys. It is the fastest growing religious group in the United States, and it's something we need to pay attention to. The March issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up this question regarding where they come from, what they believe, and how we can point them to Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness. Visit witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
2: Welcome back to Issues Etc. On this Friday, February the 24th, it's our series responding to Roman Catholic proof texts. Answering the question, did St. Augustine teach that the Church decides doctrine? Dr. Stephen Parks is our guest. So, Dr. Parks, what would you find in Scripture to refute the idea that the Scriptures themselves are insufficient to establish doctrine?
1: Yeah, you don't really find that kind of thing in the Scripture, obviously. What the Catholics do is they will very frequently appeal to the idea that Jesus taught orally and didn't write anything, as if somehow that idea is new to Protestantism or to Lutheranism. Or they'll point out that the apostles taught orally and that what they taught orally was the Word of God. And of course, that's not the issue, and it never has been the issue when it comes to the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. What the issue is, is the circumstances in the 16th century, or we might say the circumstances today in the 21st century where Jesus doesn't abide with us in quite the same way that he did in the first century, and where the apostles are no longer with us. Now, what recourse do we have to the infallible teaching which God has revealed to us? Jesus isn't here to preach it to us orally in the way that he was in the first century, and the apostles aren't here to preach it to us orally in the way that they were in the first century. So we no longer have an infallible access to their first-person teaching, So what do we have access to? And the answer is we have access to the things that were written by the apostles. So that becomes then the rule of faith for the church. And this is something that Augustine was very, very clear about. In fact, in his writings, he says, for example, in his work on Christian doctrine, book two, chapter nine, he says, for among the things that are plainly laid down in scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith and the manner of life. So Augustine wasn't looking for the church to add to Scripture. Yes, there are times where he looks to the church in order to confirm as a witness the things which Scripture clearly teach, but he isn't looking to the church as an infallible arbiter of the faith. That's a role that he gives to Holy Scripture alone.
2: So if we were just having a casual conversation, how would you advise someone to respond when it is asserted that the church is able either through the papacy or through the kind of general magisterium or the councils decide the doctrine actually finalize rather than simply confess true doctrine
1: yeah i'd urge them to recognize that they're conceiving of the church in a way that's unbiblical and unhistorical and frankly spiritually dangerous if we're to think about the church correctly then we probably ought to think about the church more like for example the moon than we do the sun right the sun has its own power it has its own energy it gives off its own light and we might say that's true about the holy scriptures that's true about the divinely given word of god the church is intended to say the same things that scripture says it's intended to reflect the things that are taught so when we look up into the night sky we see the moon shining but we know that the moon doesn't have a light in and of itself but instead, it shines because it reflects the light of the sun. And in the same way, when we talk about the glory of the church, if we're to speak in that kind of way, we want to speak about a church which reflects the Holy Scriptures and which teaches the things that God himself has revealed there. When we belong to a church that does that, then we are bound by God to listen to that church And to heed it, as Jesus says when he sends out the disciples, he who hears you hears me, he who rejects you rejects me. But that's true insofar as they bring the word of God. If they bring something else, that we're not bound to listen to. And we have plenty of warnings as it relates to that in Scripture as well. Think, for example, of Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to the bishops. He's speaking to the leaders, the the elders, the pastors in the churches And he says to them, from among your own number, men will arise speaking perverse things, seeking to draw disciples away after themselves. So the idea is is that you always have to test what people in the church say, even the, the leaders, by an external standard. And the external standard that God has given to us is his written word, which abides forever.
2: Finally, some might assert, and it's a very common assertion, This is why Protestantism is an ever-increasing split of denominations, because they don't have a final authoritative authority in a
1: church. Well, in the sense that Protestants historically have not defined church by hierarchy. And as a result of that, we don't see the necessity of having our hierarchy be identical, but rather we see unity based upon a confession of truth. So, for example, Todd, we're members of the uh, congregations of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And as you know, there are dozens of synods throughout the world, some here in the United States, with whom we're in full altar and pulpit fellowship. Now, our hierarchies aren't identical. We have different synodical leaders or ecclesiastical leaders, for example. And there might be minor differences in polity and that sort of thing, but our confession of faith is the same. And so their folks, their pastors, are free to receive calls into our congregations and vice versa, even though we might be dozens of different denominations. So ultimately, the idea, I think, though, is this. What tends to be the mistake that is made is that if people understand Scripture differently, it must be Scripture's fault. Scripture must be unclear. And that's simply not the case. There were people who disagreed about the teaching of Jesus, where the apostles misunderstood him. There were people who disagreed about the oral teachings of the apostles. Did that somehow make them insufficient teachers? And the answer is no. When we look at Scripture and the reasons that it imputes to people not understanding what is said or disagreeing about what is said, it's not because the Son of God is unclear. It's not because his apostles are unclear. But instead, it has to deal with the question of sin. We're sinful human beings, and as a result, we tend to not listen to the voice of God. So we do have an external standard to be able to go back to, and that external standard that God has given us is Holy Scripture. So I can sit down with a Baptist, or I can sit down with a Presbyterian, or I can sit down with an Anglican if they believe in Sola Scriptura. We can sit there with our Bibles open, and we have a judge to go to. And we can work through those texts together, and as we do that, we can see what God has clearly said. I'm a living example of that, having come from a non-denominational background, when a Lutheran friend of mine named Andrew sat with me and went through Romans chapter 6, verse by verse by verse. That's how I ended up a Lutheran, not simply as a matter of being impressed by the grand tradition, such that it is, but instead being drawn to it by the power of what is clearly taught in the Scriptures.
2: Dr. Stephen Parks is Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Steve, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Todd. Always a blessing to be with you.
2: Next week on Issues Etc., we'll talk to Ginger duggar about her journey out of Bill Gothard fundamentalism. And we'll have Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Brian Ketchelmeyer respond to your unanswered Bible questions. We'll also discuss the God of the spiritual nuns with Pastor Peter Burfind. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc.
0: Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR,
2: Lutheran Public Radio.